Hi, my name's Lyle Troxell. I'm Michael Paulson. We're both software engineers at Netflix, and we kind of love the culture here. I do. Yeah. A while ago, I interviewed you, Michael, for my uh, my personal podcast talking about tech because you were doing a talk at a JavaScript conference. Yep. And it was a lot of fun having conversation here it at the office. It was a lot of fun, and yeah. it was only reasonable that we keep doing it because it is so much fun. So we grabbed other people we were interested in for one of these hack days. We do hack days things all the time here where we build fun things. And we pulled in like six different people and, t- and interviewed them. And these conversations were kind of designed to be just for people that work in Netflix. Yeah. We've done about 20 episodes. We've gone all over the map to some degree. And we realized relatively quickly that these would be interesting for anybody, not even people that work at Netflix directly. Absolutely. So what are we doing about that? Well, we decided that we should probably do these publicly. And so we're, we're going to have podcasts devoted to what do we do on various teams and kind of the culture of Netflix and those individual teams. So these conversations are just people at Netflix working at Netflix and talking about what it's like. I hope you enjoy them. <laughs> My first job. I was called Jennifer for four years. We We are are Netflix. Netflix. Oh, that one was solid. Jessica Berglund holds a Bachelor of Science in Computer Science from Central Washington University. She started her career as a QA engineer at Wide Orbit and quickly transitioned to UI engineer, and after two years moved to a dev at Snapfish and then spent a year as a senior iOS developer at Kodak Alaris, which I'm assuming was like photo-focused company. It was Kodak. Was it different than Snapfish? Uh, yeah, it was It was more of the same, but... Did it feel corporate and weird, or does it have it, a nice culture? No, it was more like Kodak Labs, so there was a team of four. Mm-hmm. I was one of the four, and we were basically trying to rapidly innovate on, you know, what makes Kodak and what is a Kodak moment, and so um, we worked in a co-working space, and it felt very much like a startup, but with the backing of a 100-plus-year-old company. Which so is kind of nice. It was really fun. Was that up in San Francisco as well? It was, yes. And then about a year ago, you left and joined us here as a senior user interface engineer focused on iOS at Netflix. Mm-hmm. So, hi. Thank hi. you for coming and chatting with us. Jordana Kwok has a Bachelor of Arts and Science in Computer Engineering from University of Waterloo and also a Master of Arts and Science in Systems Design Engineering from Waterloo. So you really were full on to that whole education thing. Did you uh, work on a PhD? I almost went into a PhD. I had a few supervising academic professors asking me if I wanted to continue my master's work into PhD. But I kind of discovered during my, you know, master's degree that academia wasn't really my thing. I really enjoyed industry. And I had... um, During my time at Waterloo, we actually had this interesting program where you would do four months of study, four months of work. So you had, you know, paid internships, essentially. And that's where you went to RIM for a while? Yes. And what was that like? Is this in the heyday of RIM? Um, It was actually while they were kind of, you know, reaching their peak, kind of on the way up. And it it was exciting because Apple hadn't come up with their iPhone yet at that point. And, Mm -hmm. you know... The BlackBerry was the thing. It was the hotness. Yeah, it was the hotness at that time. And then when you actually left, you actually became a user interface engineer at RIM full-time after you lived at university? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and you stayed there for quite a while and kind of moved up and doing different things. What was the feeling of RIM during that time? Did you see it start going down or the entire time there it was rocking? Uh, it was it was in like super rocket mode, you know, fueling, you know, with the with all the you know, the stock price going up and everything. They were just hiring a lot. So growth was shooting up. 
um, when the iPhone came out, that's when everyone's like, hmm, what do we have to do next? <laughs> <laughs> and you were there because, of yeah. course, the iPhone comes out early. You left in 2010 and went off to um, Melmo. I have no idea. what It's a SAP company of some kind of. Yeah. So Melmo was actually like a stealth name for a startup company. Uh, this company worked on mobile business intelligence applications. So data mining? Uh, no, it's it's kind of like um, you know you might have used Tableau or something along yeah. those lines where you where you take like you know KPIs and then look at them, you analyze know, data, analyze data, help uh, people understand numbers exactly, and you know have fancy charts and everything. And were you the fancy chart person? Yes. Oh, cool. <laughs> so that that was very uh, exciting. And what platform were they doing at that point? At that point, they hired me originally for the BlackBerry, mm-hmm. given my experience there, and then we migrated over to Android because I was getting a lot of traction. Mm-hmm. Um, iOS was their base platform, so it was mostly, you know, trying to diversify across different mobile platforms. Yeah. And so when you were there, you were doing RIM, and RIM's developed – what was RIM developed in? What was that language? Uh, they were using – at first they were using C++. Uh-huh. Then it became Java. Uh-huh. So I, I have, you know, mostly a Java background. Yeah. So, you know, move, moving from that, uh, interestingly, into web – yeah, uh, at Melmo. Yeah, so at Melmo, it was a lot of web development. Were you was it three JS there, or what were you doing for visualization there? Uh, we wrote our own. Oh, you wrote your own. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. And we did have um, an additional engineer who was doing like uh, you know just two D WebGL, right. which was really interesting. Yeah, yeah cool. So then, um, four and a half years ago, or a little less than four and a half years ago, you you joined Netflix, and at that time, Netflix mobile app you worked on the iOS app was a WebView app. Can you explain what a WebView app is? Yeah, so. A web view app is essentially you're you're rendering, you know, a web application that is wrapped in a native application. So the native application itself is uh, I, I, at that time I think it was still Objective C. Mm-hmm. It was just written, you know, in C plus plus actually and Objective C. But inside the the UI itself was rendered using web technologies, and it's almost like a browser within your app. Yeah. Um, okay, so at this day and age, and about three years ago, I guess, the iOS app was rewritten in Objective-C and a, a, custom, a, a native application. And Jessica, you've, you've worked here only since that migration, right? So you were hired in as an iOS developer and have never worked on the WebView app. You're working on the existing app, which is Objective-C. Yes, that's true. And um, I want to talk a little bit about what um, have been challenges for – what differences for working other places in here we'll touch upon if anything comes up. But what's um, – What's it like to work on such a prominent app on the App Store? I mean, what's it feel like to do that every day? For me, it's pretty much what drives me. I I love having impact. I love knowing that everything I do, millions of people use it and see it. And uh, it totally highlights the whole freedom and responsibility of Netflix where I, I can really touch any part of the app and I, I can say, you know, absolutely that I did that and that was my decision. And um, it's really great to be able to point at something and be like, I did that. Uh, I tend to whip out my phone during dinners and I always point to the latest project <laughs> I'm working on. Like, that's me. Uh, and that that is honestly um, everything I've ever wanted was to have a career where I know that I'm actually bringing – I'm bringing joy to people yeah. and actually creating something that people enjoy. Yeah. It's interesting. The As a software engineer in my career, most of the time people talk, you talk to them and they're like, I don't understand what you're talking about, right? You're just an average person, right? But Netflix is like, okay, if you have that, you, you use Netflix application? Yeah. Okay, I do that. It, there is this feeling of like people go, oh, I understand. Right away they understand even if they're not a software engineer person. Yeah. It does make introductions much shorter, yeah. which is really great. You two worked and led this project that was a test, and it was a UI test, and it was a lot of development. Um, I think it was, it was called WD40. Oh, yeah. Explain, explain what this thing was. So 
The code name really came from uh, actually, I think it was our manager, Tom Tom Richards, and he had this idea, and it was really engineering driven. It wasn't really because、um, we also work really alongside a product team, and they come up with a lot of ideas. But you know, engineering also gets a lot of say into you know what the next projects can be and what we think would you know result in the positive experience. So this was led by engineer、uh-huh. desires,、oh, yeah,、cool. and it was like you know. Thinking, hey, how can we make navigation smoother? And you know, WD forty, it's supposed to make things smoother. <laughs> ah, oh, that's where the name came from. You know what、yeah. WD、really? stands for? Catch that one? No, I thought maybe the product was squeaky, but I thought that was kind of insulting. <laughs> no, but no. yes, makes things smoother. Do you know what WD stands for? The WD forty, the actual oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Water <laughs> displacement. The fortieth fortieth attempt to displace water. So it's actually not really a good、um, like lubrication for. For long-term existence, it's for expelling water from your joints. So people use it for like hinges, and if you do that, you just have to add it a lot. So it's not I feel the like there's、thing. a star coming across. Like, the more you know. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so WD40 is this project that engineer-based. Let's talk about the app. Most people understand what Netflix app looks like. It's a row of movies. What's it called, Michael? It's a list of list of movies. If we're going to be honest, and describe what that means. Like, how, how, what do you mean by list of list of movies? So you have. A vertical amount of movies. Well, right now is that even true anymore on the, on the、sure. iPhone? That, that's true. Effectively, we have both a vertical set of movies, which means you can scroll up and down, and we have horizontal, which means you can scroll left and right. And they're not actually movies; they're really seasons and series and shows and movies. But Legacy, and,、yeah. we were a DVD company, and we had a list of list of movies only. So we lovingly refer to that as the Lullamo. So when you're navigating on the TV or the website or, or the mobile app, and you look at a box art and you're kind of scrolling back different directions, that's the the general tactic of how we pre- present videos. And those rows, of course, are kind of genre based. Like one of the rows might、yeah. be horror movies, and one might be comedian standups. And there's because you like Bruce Willis because、right. you watched whatever. Right. And then that whole collection is of that type. Okay.、Yep. So that's the standard form. What's WD40 do? Jessica. Well.、Uh, Based on the name, we're trying to reduce friction in browsing, and so one of the points of friction that we really focused on was this concept of you kind of pogo sticking in and out of movies. When you're looking for a movie or show or any sort of thing to watch,、um, you're usually kind of comparing a couple of them, and you're and you're kind of browsing in and out of different ones before you ultimately make your decision.、Mm-hmm. And so at WD40, we wanted to find a way where you can just really smoothly navigate from. One title to another title without friction. So right now you see that list of box art, and all you use an image. You click on it, and it opens up what we call as a display page.、Mm-hmm. Then to see the next display page, you close that one, go to the next box art, and click it again. And this has to do with not having hover states on TV. It operates differently on website. It operates differently, but on a mobile device, you kind of the finger just says go, and what do you do at that point? Okay, so you the display page did something different. So. The average experience is you tap on a box art and a display page opens. So you get some information, maybe synopsis, cast, and then if you want to see a different box art,、uh, the most common path is just tap on the X and close it. We wanted to make it so that you can really explore easily, and so、um, one iteration of WD40 was to kind of take that row. That list concept and kind of bring it as if you're zooming into it, and so now you can see other titles left and right, including a synopsis and the cast for each of the titles, and just gracefully swipe until you find exactly what you want to watch. And it felt good. I mean, it was a hard engineering challenge. I'm assuming, yeah. Yes. What, what do you guys do? To, what, what kind of things did you run into in changing to that? 
from an engineering perspective? What was challenging? I think actually um, the interesting challenge, at least from my perspective, was actually on the data side, because when you're kind of pogo sticking in and out, you're kind of almost giving some friction in terms of how quickly you can request data. But then when you kind of add in some gestures where you can smoothly, you know, go across multiple display pages. Swipe to the side, swipe to the side, swipe to the side. Yes, it means that you have to start, you know, managing more data requests. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a real challenge. Like Uh as the person swiping, you have to get data, but you don't want to get too much data. And if they swipe really fast, you might want to cancel that data. Yes. So what do you do in that situation? Did you have to restructure and create a new model to handle that? Uh, We did restructure a little bit of the uh, data fetching mechanism to be able to cancel properly. I think that was the one big thing that we we just assumed every time you hit the X, right, that, okay, we can we can cancel there. But we didn't have the ability to just, you know, cancel while, say, it's swiped off screen. Yeah. What do you take advantage of doing that Um, from like a real deep level? Do you use some kind of component structure in Objective-C to do this? Yeah, actually, the base of that was uh, UI collection view. And there was, um, you know, in, in, in UI collection view, you get a lot of uh, delegate methods that are able to tell you, hey, this is, you know, going to end display. And mm-hmm. then you could base it off of that and, you know, say recycle things and cancel, you know, any in-flight requests. Michael, did you get a chance to play with it? I WD-40? have not you got didn't. a chance to play with WD-40. Well, I played with WD-40, but not, <laughs> not this. Yeah. Uh, I actually have questions about the data, the data fetching. So I, I was always under the assumption that you guys request all the data up front. So how do you, what, how was that a challenge? Because I thought you already had all that data. So when you're doing it, you're actually requesting more data, correct? Yeah. So in the Lolomo, we try to get as much data as we need just to render the Lolomo. There's sort of, with mobile, there's two things that you have to balance. You have to balance making a limited number of requests, and then you have to balance how much data you need per request. Uh, so the Lolomo is, it is, yes, one request and you get all the data, but it's only what we have to display that particular view. So typically the box art and title. Um, once you go into the display page, there's a lot of things that you need additionally, like the list of episodes, um, all of the the metadata about those episodes, but you also need your what we call volatile data. So things that change relatively often. So like your, what? Like your ratings, um, your your viewing history, if you viewed it, how much, um, and uh, those things need to be requested at the time that you view it. We want it in a timely manner, mm-hmm. and we want it to to feel. Up to date. Because I might like on television in the morning watch an episode of some show and then on the train ride into work, I pull up my phone and I want to see where I was when I was watching, not just the last time my phone loaded, but where I was most recently. That's the volatile data you have to refresh. Exactly. Okay. So that gets done on display page open. So that's that extra. And the episode list sounds kind of challenging because we have lots of episodes sometimes. So you're pulling all that art in and everything during that time, during swipe gestures. Yeah, it sounds like a, sounds challenging. Yeah. And the episode, um, you can imagine some shows have many seasons, like 10 seasons of, I don't know. Friends. Friends. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A lot of episodes. Yeah. And that you have to manage that request in the sense of, hey, can can we fetch, um, you know, all of them at once? 
you know, you have to balance, uh, you know, the the payload size that might come in and the, you know, latency and the round trip time. And, and versus the multiple requests, of course, was more expensive to turn the antenna on and off exactly. more times. We, yeah. we investigated paginating, mm-hmm. but there's always the price you pay. Either you pay for the number of requests you make or the payload. Now, the other thing about this, about investment in time and energy when working on this, is that this is what's called an A-B test. So, Michael, tell us what an A-B test is. An A-B test is where you have two separate experiences in which you allocate an amount of users into each one that will give you a statistically significant amount of data to understand which one did better based on core metrics of the business. And the thing that's neat about A-B tests is it gives you the affordance to do something like an engineer-driven experience, right? Like, well, it might work. It might not work. Let's put some resources on it, try it out, and see if people like it. And the reason why I asked if you had seen W-40 is people didn't like it or we didn't keep it on. It was a failed test or a successful test, depending on how you think about it. So how long did you guys work on that project? I think it was several months. Yeah, yeah it was it, at it, least two months. I think it was originally when we when we estimated it, it was like, oh, yeah, it's going to be like five weeks or something. But because we worked in uh, such an interesting uh, environment, so we actually co-located with the design team this for, for this particular project. And we went back and forth a lot, like just iterated, um, you know, we would – almost prototype something Mm -hmm. for them to see and see if that's what they were kind of thinking in their head. And, um, yeah, that, that made it so that, you know, we, we extended the the project a little bit longer, Yeah. but when we did actually allocate, meaning that it it was sent to users and some users got this experience and some users didn't get the experience. So we look at some core metrics and some of those core metrics, did not perform as well as uh, our control, which is the current experience. And obviously, we we had a hypothesis that, hey, maybe the navigation would actually let people explore more and, you know, they'll stay on the app longer or look, you know, play more, find more things to play. Uh, in this case... We didn't, we didn't turn we, it on. We, yeah, we didn't <laughs> so, turn it on. Yeah. Are you guys going to displace water for the 41st time? <laughs> there isn't a, a follow-up test where it's like WD-40, the sequel, uh, but we learned a tremendous amount during the process. And the, the challenge with tests is the two parts. One, it's you're writing code that has to go to production, and so it has to be high quality, but you have to balance. It's also a test, so don't spend a year on it. And so you have to make some... Um, you have to make some compromises, both in the engineering, the architecture, but also in the user experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part is you might be hitting some of your core metrics, so you might be improving some aspects, but um, maybe offsetting user behavior. So you might have users doing something that is not um, conducive to them actually finding a particular title that they want to watch. So they might end up using this new feature more and enjoying it, but it doesn't actually help them in the way that we hypothesized. But Jessica, when you're at dinner with your family and someone asks what you do, you're like, I did this. And you pull out that, that moment there is worth so much to you. I mean, isn't it hard to like just go, oh, the last three months, you can't even see what I did? No, because there's always something on the horizon. And that's probably my favorite part about A-B tests is it, there's no, nothing is stagnant here and there's always something we can learn. And so there's always a new and exciting project on the horizon that I can pull out at dinner and show off. So let's talk about like you had to make some compromises. We're not doing shortcuts. We're doing compromises. Okay. So you had to make some compromises understanding that this develop this code that you're developing needs to happen quickly, needs to be stable, but also might be pulled out later. So what kind of things did you say, well, we could change this throughout the app, but 
we won't. What kind of things were like that? Uh, I think the core display page architecture, because the way it was written was really, you know, meant for go in and out. You know, you you show one at a time. It was never meant for hey, show th- possibly three at a time, and that was the one big thing that um, you know we didn't want to touch. Yeah, and that was a compromise. So, you know, we took, I, I guess you could say, a shortcut in that um, we we just reimplemented it. In the in a way where it's like, hey, take the existing one, uh, make a copy of it, yeah. essentially, which is then, not something normally want to do in software development because then yeah. it, you have two things to maintain. Yes, right. exactly. So, so it it does give us the freedom to make these decisions. Like, you know, as an engineer, no one's going to say, hey, you must do it this way, right. or your your manager is not going to tell you, hey, you must like you know rearchitect this whole thing for this one test. So you you have a lot of say in terms of um, the direction and. You know, architecture, implementation-wise, uh, even timeline. You know, of of these projects and tests. Yeah. So you you went back to the code and had to pull things out, and and some things, of course, you actually didn't get pulled out because it was used during the mm-hmm. I mean during the time. Some things were being taken advantage of. From a learning perspective, you know, pull the code out, get it to turn off. It's not going to work anymore. You're going to do something else now. What things did stay? What things were like? Oh, that was an improvement. Or what things are going to stick with you in new future stuff? One of the things that um, we had to do was optimize a lot of our code uh, to get smooth, buttery 60 frames per second with as much rendering as we had on the screen. Mm-hmm. We had to actually go to our existing architecture and do a lot of optimization. So it was actually a win for the existing experience as it was a win for WD-40. Can you break that down? Like, How did you guys figure out what was slow, what was fast? What you change? So one example to get kind of into the nitty-gritty is um, we tend to try to use best practices in uh, laying out the, the the actual UI, and both for just code readability and also future maintainability. But um, one example is that of that is auto layout, which everyone has their opinion on. And um, we found both with auto layout and also uh, loading the views from Zibs, they have a price. Just like with network calls, all of those have a price to pay. And in this case, we didn't have, we couldn't afford that price. And so we had to rewrite the code, yes, in a compromise in a way that might not be as maintainable in the future, but it sped up the user experience tremendously. Auto layout is wonderful when you're in a, an iPad environment where you can rotate the screen all the time. And so you design your, your views to actually re-lay out anytime the rotation occurs. And so auto layout's convenient. But in this uh, thing only worked on the phone. And so you didn't have to deal with the portrait experience. So some of the benefits of that wasn't worth it. And of course, that takes processing time to calculate those. So you yank them and it goes smoother. And is that staying in the now the new display page or the display page that currently exists? Is that stuff now there? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Many of the components have now been rewritten kind of using a different layout engine. Yeah, so nice. it's um, it, it's at least there for now until a new A-B test uh, says otherwise. <laughs> There's this perspective of our culture that it's, a, it's a, a fearful place or scary place because at any point you can just be removed, you know, fired if you're not up to par. But you've been here for over four, like four and a half years or so. Do you find – do you have a fear aspect of, of like, you know, a major three works of your work gets thrown away in some sense? Is there – do you have any fear on that? Not at all. Uh, that was actually – during my interview, it was one of the things that, you know, is, was brought up. Like, I, I even asked questions around it just, you know, hearing from, like, Glassdoor or some other places where – 
there's a lot of feedback about, you know, fear or, um, you know, this culture of, hey, I don't know what's happening behind my back. Uh, there's there's really none of that. And it's it's interesting because I, I understand how, you know, sometimes, you know, business requirements, something something might need to restructure and, you know, teams change you know Mm -hmm. that that happens but the thing that's really exciting about at least mobile is that um it's evolving all the time so for example the evolution where we went from a web view app into a full-fledged native app i mean um you know that gives you the opportunity to actually evolve with it Mm -hmm. and you know that's that's one thing that you know maybe Maybe another five years from now, <laughs> there's just going to be another evolution. Yeah. Yeah. So the app right now is in Objective-C, and Apple has rewritten, you know, made open source um, Swift. And some companies are taking on Swift as as the, the beast to use for the programming language. And at the same time, early on in the process, it was changing, iterating a lot. So if you, if you did it too quickly, in fact, when Apple first released it, they're like, this is our roadmap. You know, it was really clear that here's what we've made, but also here's a roadmap. At some point, though, Apple... It seems clear that it's going to be time to move to Swift. Are you guys thinking about that and looking at that possibility? Jessica? We're definitely thinking about it. It's something that um, – so most of our meetings are sort of basically self-directed. So we have a team meeting where we discuss Swift almost weekly. And um, it's – we don't want to just use a technology for the sake of using it. Uh, there's – you know, it's fun. I used Swift for an entire year before I moved to Netflix, and it is a lot of fun to use. And it's always fun to feel like you're on the cutting edge, yeah. but um, it's, you know, there is a cost to that too. And it's something that we as individual engineers have to make that decision if that cost is worth it, or as my favorite coworker used to say, is the juice worth the squeeze? Um, and so when I think it's, at any one time, any one of us can actually start writing what we want in Swift, and some of our code is written in Swift. That's interesting. So you're saying that you you, t- you chat about it weekly as a group, and at any point you guys could all decide to just do it. There's like 20 people kind of involved in the, in the development. And at any point you could be like, We're, this makes sense. So it's not really like there's not a mandate or any of that, but there is this aspect as soon as you make that decision, you're then kind of on this road of – having to ride kind of two different programming languages. Is that a concern? I think uh, currently, you know, that that is one of the concerns. Um, but also currently around, you know, our build infrastructure, it's whether or not we have, you know, the time resources to support that mm-hmm. because it is adding, you know, additional uh, costs there. Um, will this negatively impact our build times, for mm-hmm. example? Or um, you know our distribution because one of the things we have in the in the app and most of our apps we have all these tests that run so you know one of the devs will Jessica will you'll go ahead and remove WW40 and submit that and then the systems will build the app deploy it to a whole bunch of tests uh, we have iPads and iPhones all over the place in different rooms here and it will run through all these suites of things and so oh you made a mistake here and it'll, uh, an error will occur and you'll fix that if necessary and and TV is the same thing websites the same thing so there's this whole process of doing that structure, which also has to, it's not just about Jordana deciding to put Swift in, it's also yes. about the entire pipeline. Mm-hmm. But no one's saying don't do that. It's more like if you start that process, you're kind of going to help shepherd that process. So we should probably uh, be a little bit more specific, at least at, you know, a lot of companies I've been at, every time you make one of those changes, it's not just 
whoever those 20 people are in the room, you usually have to get buy-in from mm-hmm. management or upper management. How much does that play a role in this? Like if you were to switch to Swift, there's an obvious like institutional cost like, hey, we can't do A-B tests for the next X months because it's virtually impossible. How does I, how does that play into it? I don't know. I don't know anything about iOS. So yeah, actually, in my world, if you were <laughs> yeah. to say, I'm going to rewrite this, it takes time. So I don't know how Swift works. It sounds like it's very Swift if you don't even have to incur that cost. <laughs> It, it can live side by side with our objective C code. So there, there is no really, you know, it's not like, hey, this is another rewrite of the Netflix application. Yeah. So, well, the question, I think the root of Michael's question is really like, who makes, who makes these kinds of decisions in the team? If it's, it's a collaborative group, there's, this, there's a manager, obviously, that says yes or no, right? So uh, the interesting thing, at least this is from my experience um, in terms of like, you know, these big decisions around, you know, say language or um, infrastructure changes, a lot of it is, you know, engineer, like individual ICs, like individual contributors driven in the sense that, you know, it's it's kind of up to you to make, uh, you know, the pros and cons and weigh them. And it's not really your manager saying, hey, uh, you know, this is what we're going to do. Give me reasons why. It's almost like myself presenting this to my manager and yeah. saying, hey, I, I have a case for going in this direction. Here's some evidence. And then obviously it's, uh, you know, as a group on, you know, in like say 20 folks on <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on our team, uh, it's not just our, our team specifically, but also the extended teams, um, you know, agreeing on it and having a good case for it. And then you know, leveraging your manager to really kind of make this, uh, you know, a final decision, mm-hmm. being able to propagate it beyond your right. immediate teams. Right. Um, that's how I how I've been able to make any any major change. Yeah, it feels more like a collaborative process, like yeah. a whole bunch of contractors talking about things even when it's your manager, which is neat. Lots of times, though, I find the manager um, has a context that you're just not aware of that's like, oh, there's that happening, right? They might know something about, like, prior to the global expansion, they might know that we're about to expand globally, but we haven't made that you know public. And so there's, like, a thought process of how that potentially could impact things. So there's a lot of other... Uh, context that uh, we just don't have time to know about, even though we're given that information in a kind of amazing way. Hey, what, Jessica, you're the, the newest in the four of us. You're the newest to Netflix. What do you think about like the QBR documentation, the, all this internal documentation being available to you about how the company runs? Was it different than Kodak? Uh, it's absolutely different. I've never seen so much uh, open sharing of information and um, – you know, if I have the time and energy to seek it out, it's all there for almost everything I can read and, and um, learn about. So do you do you have the time to do that, to spend like looking at what, you know, next star we're going to hire or anything like that? In the beginning, absolutely. Um, I was so excited to learn everything. I think I read every single QBR document. And now it's I pick and choose what's more relevant to me in my job and also just what I'm interested in. Q, uh, sorry, QBR stands for uh, quarterly business review. It's like the business documentation. All the execs and directors write up like what their unit is doing so that the entire company knows. And then we get access to all those things after the meeting happens. Yes. So, so those are my favorite um, bus reading uh, material because I can just kind of crank up the the text size and just uh, read it in the morning and sit my coffee and it's great. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's fun. And it's, it's interesting is it doesn't necessarily impact what we're doing every day, but it sure is fun to see what's happening. But also just the, the dialogue that happens throughout the company about what our next strategy would be, what, what could we do next, and where should we choose to, to do things. And also, like, we have this, you know, open Q&A with the CEO, and he actually, you know, Reed actually responds to questions posted there. Do you, you, Michael, I bet you participated a little bit. I, I have there. asked a question. <laughs> and that's fun to get kind of an honest answer in, internally. We should probably explain that a touch more. Uh, something that I think is very unique that we definitely did not have at any of the companies I've been a part of is that we have a fully open document internally in which you can ask any question you want, and someone from the C-suite will answer that question. Uh, personally, I asked why isn't January 1st known as Netflix Day? Because uh, <laughs> a lot of people watch Netflix yeah, on January 1st. it's a day. great day to watch Netflix. And they didn't really bite that idea. I think it's still a good one, but maybe we'll get that one next year. <laughs> uh, do you guys do hiring? Like, Do you participate in interviewing new candidates? Yeah, yeah. We've uh, both been involved with, um, you know, interview panels uh, within our team, also uh, outside of our team. What, what, how? What do you mean? Um, mainly for, especially if it's around mobile, just getting a perspective of, uh, you know, how we would be able to collaborate with this particular candidate. So let's say a designer is being hired in the mobile team. You might actually interview that candidate as well. Yeah, yeah, it's it's possible. I I haven't personally, yeah. <laughs> but but it's a possibility. Yeah, yeah. And we do that 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 process is really about you know seeing how the people fit throughout the entire company. Yeah. Um, did you interview Jessica? I did. What yes. she What she do wrong? I honestly wrong. <laughs> did she make any mistakes? Well, how'd the process go? Um, it was probably the. I wouldn't say enjoyable because it is interview, any interview enjoyable. But yes. as far as interview goes, it was the most enjoyable interview I had had to date. Um, it was a much more relaxed environment, uh, contrary to all of the, you know, the Netflix of culture Outside of fear that yeah. we had talked about. Um, I didn't, I was met with zero of that. And um, it, I appreciated the interview because it really hit on what my, what actually working at Netflix would be like. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a take home project, which I always, I, I always appreciate. Um, so the interviewing process can, of course, a tech interview can just be a whiteboard in a room and you ask some computer science question, you know, make a linked list or something. That's one process <laughs> in flow. Mm -hmm. And the other one is a more deeper, thoughtful thing, this take home idea. Yes. So they gave you a take home and you spent some time developing something. I, I did. And it was, it was great because I, I basically had to kind of defend my project or not necessarily defend, but speak with, you know, a passion of why I made certain decisions. So I was able to really think, think into how I wanted to be, what kind of developer I wanted to be and what kind of place I wanted to work. Mm -hmm. And then Jordana was able to walk through it with me and see how I think. And so... And, and not just a superficial in a half an hour, exactly, but actually yeah. like in a few hours of yes. actual development, you got to do by yourself. Yes. And we did do whiteboarding too. Mm -hmm. I think mm -hmm. I think having the variety is really beneficial. But I'd also like to highlight that every team here does their interview different. Totally true. Yeah. And um, I also appreciate then that because I get a real true representation of what working on that team will be like. Right. I've done interviews where it's their standard process and then when you join the company, it's – completely different it's you might as well have interviewed for a different company yeah like some companies will do like a boot camp process where the person the engineer gets hired and they spend a lot of time training and then at one point later on they actually join their team which here it's not like that the, no. the person that's managed hiring you is like in full control that's the other thing that's amazing mm -hmm. is that manager the hiring manager 
though you meet other people and get a lot of feedback and stuff, they can decide, even if someone else at the company is like, no, I don't think so, they can decide to hire the person anyway. So there's a lot of authority at every level, which is kind of neat. Or a lot of, I don't know if authority, a lot of um, independence. Authority, I think, actually, yeah. technically is the right, All right okay. word. Uh, so I, uh, if you guys were to give some advice, especially, you know, uh, Jessica, you just got done doing this not too long ago, what is some tips to be successful as an iOS interviewer E Interviewee? Candidate? Candidate. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I, first, I don't think that's the way you think about hiring. Like, the thing about getting a job. I, I don't think it makes sense for an engineer to go, how can I trick this company into hiring me? Well, no, because... Because that does not, in the long term, that will not work. That, right? That's not necessarily true. Like, well, there's a there's a technique to whiteboarding. You should talk about what you're going to do, mm-hmm. talk about the boxes and arrows. And if you just come in there like I did fresh out of college, I'm like, oh, I got to do link this. We got a node. We got this. We got, <laughs> you know, like, that was the wrong approach. I was not being successful for the company in which I was hiring. And so... What it, Netflix is very, very different. I sat on a porch with the VP and talked about Montana. That was my interview, and I got hired, I guess, accidentally. But no, well, Montana is pretty awesome. Montana is pretty awesome. Yeah. That's a plug for Montana. But how is how is that different? I mean, everyone comes in here probably with like the Google video. Like, this is how yeah. I'm going to be successful at a whiteboard tech company interview. Like, how is it different? What makes what are some steps to be successful here that probably isn't going to work other places? I think. Being truthful about who you are and and what you want. Um, usually when you interview, you kind of exactly try to mold yourself into what you think the company wants. And that's doing no one a favor. When you get hired now, you feel like you're not a good fit or you feel like you're an imposter. And then when they hire you, they're like, who is this? This is not the person I interviewed. So – I think just being really honest about yourself and also honest about what you want and, you know, if Netflix meets that and you meet what Netflix needs, then it's a great match. Okay. Let's move on to imposter syndrome. Do you guys ever feel like you don't know what you're doing? If I say yes, then (laughs) – She both shook her head yes and no. (laughs) That's always the question where you're like, should I say yes? Because then I admit that I feel like I don't know what I'm doing or should I say no? I have severe imposter syndrome all the time. I can second this. Did I have that? Yeah, I can second that. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Michael. (laughs) So there, the cat's out of the bag. At least one person that's been here for a while feels that way sometimes. Ever feel that way, Jessica? Um, I would say constantly. I think that's – Probably the nature of engineers, though, we're always introspective. And so it's just I think the imposter syndrome is especially rampant in our in our industry. Mm-hmm. What about you, Jordana? Um, no, yeah, awesome. <laughs> no, it, it, it happens from time to time uh, when it, it's usually around things where it, you're just completely uncertain about something, which is, again, like. You know, it's it's something engineers go through mm-hmm. often where it's like, hey, there's a brand new technology. I'm not, you know, you, you haven't read up on it. You're you're not, you know, on board with it yet. Then you're kind of like, OK, now I have to jump on board. And that's when you're kind of in that, you know, mode where the vulnerable spot. Yeah. 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 yeah because, you you know, someone comes to ask you a question about it and, you know, maybe now you're the resident expert in it and you're kind of like, well, I, I don't really know, but... You've been put in that position a f- couple times. and we, So we've been working together for four yeah. and a half years or so. Or yeah. I've been here for four years. And um, and I think actually you did hire me, which is kind of funny. Or you were in the hirees. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I guess I did okay because I'm here. But 
I've seen you quite a few times tackle something that's completely new, experimental, not just like a UI thing, but whole platform stacks. Um, the decision to go to move to uh, a native environment, for example, you were highly involved in even a pretest mm-hmm. before that. And that place is completely in an unknown. Do you like that feeling? Uh, it's I, I like the challenge. I really like, you know, just seeing that in, in that's how I guess I channel that uh, feeling of being an imposter. I kind of go, okay, you know, this is an uneasy feeling. How do I, how do I, you know, change that? And it's really kind of really diving into it and just yeah. really understanding it. So that that was one thing with when we were looking at native solutions. Um, I had I've never done Objective C. Right. It, it looked horrible syntactically, <laughs> right? You know, have you grown to love it yet? Uh, uh, it, it's, <laughs> it's a love hate, right? <laughs> it's, it's a love hate thing. Yeah, yeah. I love some of the you know, you know, concepts, but yeah, just typing it, it's autocomplete. Yeah. But um, yeah, like you know, just not knowing when when you're in that kind of mode where you're where you're thinking, okay, I can't really answer any questions about it. So what what do you do to kind of fix that? And I I just you know go headfirst into looking at reading up on it and. You know, hands on. Yeah, being hands on. And, and of course, the, the the least you know right then, the more you study it, the better you'll get at it. Yeah, and you kind of know that too. It's like, well, no matter what happens, I can get better from this position. Yes, yes. It so, sounds like you kind of enjoy that 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 exhilaration of not knowing. It's like I, I have this vision of like um, getting on a sled in a mountain range you don't know and just going for it. There's yeah. some fear there, but that's part of the joy of it. It is, and it's very satisfying after, like, once you've gotten to the point where you really understand it, and you can start, you know, making uh, solid decisions with confidence around it. You get a lot of, you know, just satisfaction, you know, out of out of being able to say yes, I can do this, or no, we can't do this. Yeah, I would like to say something that kind of highlights on imposter syndrome that I wish someone had told me. Because I'm not like Jordana. I don't like to be on the precipice. I'm happy once I've tipped off of it. That moment of tipping off of it is exhilarating. The like top I'm of, doing the, it, of but, the roller coaster? But sitting there and looking at this insurmountable task is just overwhelming. And so uh, what I found to really combat that is find mentors. And I've been really lucky in my career to have some really good mentors. But especially at Netflix, I've looked at every single one of my coworkers as a mentor because every single person has something to teach me. Mm-hmm. And if so, if you approach a problem as not this problem is insurmountable, it's, you know, who are the mentors that can help me show the way? Yeah. Because eventually you're going to become a mentor yourself and you'll realize that kind of like the the – the joy and the excitement and be able to help someone over that precipice too. And so um, if for someone starting out earlier in their career, it's like look for the mentors. And and even even without starting up early, there, there's this – computers – you know, programming is this endeavor to try to build a complicated system and still wrap your mind around it. And the boundary of that is our ability to wrap our minds about it. The software could always get more complicated. It's us that holds it back. And that's why we have so many different paradigms of talking about things. So we can, we can encapsulate the complexity and understand it. So every time, like that's why this example of, you know, you find your code from three years ago and it looks like someone else wrote it. You have no memory of what it was or how it worked. And then just like slowly comes back. But basically it's like it's somebody else's work. And so if Jordana is doing something about uh, data ma- management and you're doing something about uh, the display page scrolling and I'm doing something completely else and Michael's doing something else, all of us are this weird like 
uh, pinnacle of expertise in this very specific thing. And if any of us want to go do work in the other space, the mentor is that person, any direction you flow. So it's, it's kind of like you're constantly in this unknown spot and are an expert and also totally unaware what everything else is. And I think that the imposter syndrome really gets amplified where you go and look at, wow, what Jordana is doing is incredible. Of course, she's been spending weeks doing that and you have no idea of what it is. And so you feel like an idiot in that space. So yeah, it's, it's interesting. Well, I, I gotta say it's, it's a pleasure to work with both of you. I work with you all the time, of course, cause I also do ask development here. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> and it's really, it's a pleasure that to be able to have experts that are very knowledgeable, but also very like sharing of the, what their knowledge is. We don't have that thing of like this hard, difficult person Everyone you talk to is like, how can I help you? So it's an amazing experience. So thank you for being with those, those kind of people as well. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I got to go off to a meeting, and you're going to close down the room, right? I am going to close this room down. Any other questions? Really? No. I just had a thought about feedback. You know, just working interpersonally with, you know, your, your teammates and, you know, the wider team. Uh, there's a, you know, big culture here with, you know, giving feedback. And as often as possible, as, you know, uh, immediately as possible, actually, um, before the actually official <laughs> 360s come yeah. around. So I do appreciate that because from time to time, like, you know, someone will pull me aside and tell me, hey, you know, you know, we, we chatted about this. I think you can improve on this or, you know, it's it's very can- candid here. Do you have an experience of that? Have I ever given feedback you've acted on? You have. Okay, let's talk about that. Yeah, that, that one time I was completely stressed out. I remember that one time. And then I think you had... Uh, it was on Slack or something. You had mentioned some things, and I came over and I, and I gave an answer really quickly and left. <laughs> and I didn't really follow up. And, and so my feedback for, to you was something about I, I can't remember what it was structured, but yeah. it was basically about when you giving you know giving assistance or giving attention to yeah, somebody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I hadn't you know stood around to really kind of you know process all of that and you know provide the assistance that you were asking about. I kind of gave an answer, and I was like hoping that you know. You'd, you'd figure it out. And to me, that was like, oh, okay, yeah, I, you know, before before I, you know, go over, I should think, of, you know, hey, what is the correct approach to, you know, providing that, you it's know, that help? That was probably yeah. three years ago that I gave that yeah. feedback. And I've, since then, I've never had that experience with you. You always are very open. And at the same time, I'm also conscious that because I said, hey, be more available, that you might act more available to me. And that I, so I have this feeling like, any time I engage with you, I've got to decide, this is the time to interrupt her from what she's doing, which, of course, we should all be doing all the time anyway, right? Like, when's the appropriate time? And that's why these other side channels are really useful rather than yeah. coming to someone's desk. So um, thank you for taking that feedback. I find that extremely challenging mm-hmm. when you get hard feedback about yourself and you look at it and go, yeah, I want to be the person that's not like that. You know, I don't want that to have the trait yeah. and change it. Whew. But it happens all the time. I, yeah. I've, you know, known people for years here and I, at one point they were a certain way and now they're different. And I think that's happening because that honest feedback we have. Yeah. What uh, the converse of that? Have you had to give hard feedback? Have you avoided giving hard feedback and wish you would have? It's hard. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Let's just say yes. that. Uh, that's that's when whenever three sixties come around. That's when I kind of type it out because it's for me. It's a little bit easier to give that yeah, feedback. The safe feedback. The, yeah. When I when I put it in writing. Yeah. Three sixties um, are feedback where we give feedback to everybody at the company. So you can actually you can write up something and just a really quick simple thing to say. This is something you could do better, or this is something you're doing well. And the intention is to do it with anyone you interact with and everybody because you're basically taking that time to help improve them as a as a per, as a person that works here. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to do that though. Yeah. 
yeah, there's a lot of thought uh, that I, I personally try to put into it, um, especially if it's something where, you know, you, you can, you know, provide some constructive feedback, yeah. uh, you know, maybe some suggestions on, you know, how to improve on something. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I am a little curious about mm-hmm. iOS because we we worked somewhat together on the performance and things of that nature with the JavaScript app. And then that obviously didn't, it didn't make it and that's okay. Uh do you ever wish you'd go back to JavaScript or is just the love of square brackets? Just, uh, I, just I generally think of a language as a means to an end. <laughs> so for me, it could be whatever language. But if I can build something, you know, with a great experience, I'll, I'll use that language. And it just turns out that when we were using WebView, it was really difficult to build something yeah. uh, that was really smooth and that we were able to, you know, leverage all of the native, I guess, capabilities. Makes sense. I don't know anything about iOS at all. And so I, I can imagine it would be awesome if we had the same performance that you guys get for web, because it is extremely difficult to make JavaScript awesome. Uh, I mean, the just-in-time compiling makes it great again, at least. It kind of like almost comes back up to being something good, but it is always a very painful experience. Uh, do you have any like good points of what freedom and responsibility looks like i mean i have one that i always give the classic one inside the interview i I say that i think our expense policy is the best example Mm. of freedom and responsibility no company i've ever been to has an expense policy of acting your best interest Mm -hmm. like the last company i had a 35 five dollar seat upgrade that i could work the whole time and i had to talk to like several people to expense 35 dollars, which seems ridiculous in hindsight whereas here i don't even think jeff would have even known that I did that. And so it's really awesome to work at a company that kind of permeates that. You just do what you need to do. I, I have one. It's actually uh, because Jessica actually shuttles in every day from the city. Ooh. And it's a, it can be a long commute. Yeah, I would assume and, so. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just, okay, maybe there are no meetings that day or, um, you know, she doesn't really need to be present in the office. Why not just work from home and save whatever Five hours, five and a half hours. I'm not sure I, what it's up to. I think it's 17 at this 17 point. People hours. are bad drivers. Right? It's crazy. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, it's just as productive, you know, for someone working remotely, um, you know, as as needed. So I, I see that as like, hey, it's up to you. Uh, you know, you have the freedom to decide that. And also the responsibility to, you know, get a, you know be productive in, yeah yeah every day. friday is not laundry day yeah or um catch up with early happy hour at, <laughs> at 2 p.m day um it it's yes i can work from home but i absolutely have the responsibility to utilize that time effectively and get what i need to do done and i appreciate that because i'm treated you know i'm treated like an adult, adult. which is um i appreciate it's a little unusual, I think. It is in, a little unusual. Yeah, I, there's a lot of mandates at most companies um, that you must do this, you must not do that, and there's no reason why, other than some historical three years ago somebody broke a rule and it, it caused a minor inconvenience, and now everyone is inconvenienced. Um, none of that happens in Netflix. Yes, that's my. That's actually my favorite point. Here's a question that I've been struggling with this one for a while because I've been here for four years. I think uh-huh. that's like the Silicon Valley dinosaur point. It's like once yeah. you hit four years, you should leave a company. <laughs> I've heard even two years, which seems ridiculous. What's going to make you leave, Jordana? Like I don't think I can necessarily leave. My, I, 
It's interesting because mine is uh, usually never around like the work yeah. I'm doing because I usually I find a way to to make the work exciting. Um, usually it comes down to you know your team, uh, your direct manager, or maybe even you know yeah. higher up the chain. And if you know some something in that relationship is just not right, you know I don't. At that point, I don't care what I'm working on, right? Yeah. And yeah, the toxic that, that, environment. Yeah, like a toxic environment. And right now, like at Netflix, that's not the case. So. Yeah, that's – I mean I was considering a, a new job for a while. And I mean a good example is Jeff hand wrote me a Christmas card and mm-hmm. said nice – you know, said nice yeah. things. You know, it's just one of those things where it's just like I've never had a boss that's awesome. Like I mean I've had good bosses, but I've mm-hmm. never had a boss that I was like this is the person with whom I'd like to try to be more like. And yeah. so – it's hard to find, I think. I don't know. I haven't also had that many jobs. It's definitely hard to find. And when you're you're working, yes, as a developer for 50% of the time, but the other 50% is you're working with people. So those people have to be really good and really enjoyable to work with. And it, from my last company, I left specifically to follow a very excellent manager. And um, I think – that just highlighted to me how much I value the people I work with and the at Netflix, the people are top notch. So far. <laughs> so far. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Sorry, future people. <laughs> Is there any challenges that you've guys had so far? Like partner challenges, things that make working difficult because I don't, uh, being on the originals team, it's, it's, Unique in the sense that I go to each one of these platforms. They each have their own kind of idioms, if you will, for how how you should do things. And if you mess that up, people are, rah, rah. but you probably don't have that problem because you are the idiom definer. So if idiom is the right word, idiosyncrasy, something. Anyways, you have your own specific flavor in which you program. Like, how does do you guys run into problems with how you make changes and hurt partners? Oh, yeah. Because we're the partners. So yes. I, don't, I, I don't know from the, the flip side. Actually, yes. Uh, we don't want to have angry partners. <laughs> that's a, reason, and, and, that's and, and, a reasonable thing to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, even if you're, say, you say, defining the idioms, it's I, – I don't think it's reasonable to say you must follow this. Like, we can't tell our partners that, hey, this is exactly what you should follow. Because each each team and each of our partners, they – they have their own kind of almost like a team culture. They might do things a little bit differently because of business requirements. And they're, you know, there's no one here saying, hey, you must do it this way or it's wrong. Well, then that naturally gets into yeah. kind of conflict resolution, at least all the places I've been at. So team one has a problem and team two has a problem. It's pretty much impassable or mm-hmm. there's some amount of tension that effectively they both go hey manager help us out and managers you know i don't know what they do they shut yeah. a door and they come out and there's an answer does that work the same here how, how do you resolve like inter-team problems like lyle so lyle's a problem i think we've well established <laughs> that so far i can't wait for him to edit this because now he's gonna have to hear this like how, how would you if you two came to an impasse how would you solve it would it be as simple as just jeff and tom going to a room and well, if, comes an well answer, if, or? if it was something with, between me and Lyle, I I would get in a room with him, or go. Actually, I'd go outside, go on the trail, and take a nice walk, That's a good point. and and you know talk it through. Um, we're all the adults here, like you know, and it should be you know honest to kind of resolve that. But if it's a bigger bigger kind of challenge between 
the teams themselves. Um, getting getting the manager to help that's that's a yeah. big thing. I think that's. I kind of wanted to highlight that because that's a very unique thing. Because whenever I've had problems at other companies, just like simple technology disagreements, it's like you have to just cover everything in red tape, and someone will figure <laughs> out at some point. Whereas here, it's like. I've had some deep problems like, hey, I think this is a really bad mm. idea. And they were like, I think you're a really bad idea. And then we start insulting each other. But yeah. at the end, it comes out, you know, like we yeah. can actually just talk it out because we're adults. And I, and that's a unique thing to have mm. as a company that actually views people as adults. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty happy about that. Agreed. Oh, agreed. How much uh, – do you feel like culture assimilated at this point one year in, Jessica? At least for the iOS team, I think every team has a unique culture too. So there's the overall Netflix culture, but then each team has their own little flavor for it. So I feel like I've finally like settled into the iOS team. Um, you know, it's got its own special personalities <laughs> that uh, make coming to work really fun every day. And I'm not being sarcastic; it really does make work coming to uh, make coming to work fun. You got that. <laughs> you fell into that one. It got good. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, it, it took a little bit of time because it's so different at Netflix than anywhere else I've worked. Um, it's much more bottom up than top down. I'm used to kind of just my manager just giving me the, the, the next project I'm going to work on. He just hands it to me. And then the, the designers just tell me exactly what it's going to look like. And then usually product manager tells me when I'm going to be done. Like I don't even have a say on the timeline. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and I hate that that last part. Absolutely, by the way. yes. Especially if feeling. it's you know so like pseudo agile, but then there's a hard deadline um, because that's not exactly that's the agile. best kind yeah. of agile. <laughs> that, that's um, <laughs> we have a timeline for your tasks. <laughs> yes, you get to iterate on this, uh, but it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as the end product is done exactly when I say it's going to be done. So, thanks. Um, so we have a lot of uh, ability to pivot um, and make decisions that are both beneficial for us as developers, but also for product. Um, like WD40 was a really good example of that, of there was uh, really great prototypes being made, but then we kind of mm-hmm. came and said, this is really expensive, but here's alternatives that are cheaper that we can do. And so we actually went with a cheaper alternative because in the end, it, it helped us answer the questions that we had. Mm-hmm. And I've never been able to, except when I was working in the pseudo startup, I've never had that experience before. Yeah. Did you guys ever break production? I did have something right before the holidays. This oh, was before. The, that before. is the worst time to have it. <laughs> because we had to do a point release to fix it. What's a point release? So it's like a. So we, you might you know release a major version change like nine dot five zero, and then uh, there's a bug in it. And it's warrants enough that you have to resubmit to the App Store. And the Ooh. App Store submission is – it does take a, you know, a while, especially during the holiday season because even Everyone's if you, doing it, right? Yeah, everyone's doing it. It might be backlogged. It might not make it out in time. And everyone's being hit by this specific bug. And in my case, it was two things playing back at the same time. Ooh. Remember previews. <laughs> and that was that, oh, I hit the play and I freaked out. I like – I stayed up late that night. <laughs> Do you guys get particularly worried? Because we have the, you know, the culture of kind of fear is what the outside, like, perception is. Do you feel worried when you break production? I mean, I broke it like a string of four times in a row, and I was like, oh, that's probably not too good. But normally I don't – I personally don't have a problem when those things happen. No. It's a learning experience usually. Yeah. It, I, I think 
especially in this point in my career, I've progressed a little bit beyond fear because if I haven't caused production issues in the in the decade I've been working, then I'm not doing anything. Uh, production issues are just a way of life and you do everything you can to protect against it. But in mm-hmm. the end, we're all human. Um, two days ago, I created a bug that crashed a relatively large percentage of users. I mean, we're still talking probably sub 1%, but that's huge. Yeah. Um, and we had to do a point release and fix it. And so it's you know, it is, of course, embarrassing to realize that you submitted something that actually caused a crash. But uh, I also learned from it. And um, I won't do that exact same issue ever again. <laughs> and um, I think that's that's the key is learning from it. Yeah. Yeah. And we tend to lean forward um, in terms of, you know, instead of rolling back to yeah. a previous bill, it's like, OK, fix it and move forward. Mm hmm. Yeah, we do. We we try to do that too on website. It's it's kind of a gamble. Like if you get a big mm. enough bug, it's it's a hard one to try to push through. But it's usually the best, I think, decision. The end. Yay! <laughs> Thank you guys. We appreciate you guys coming. Thank you. Thank you. My first job, I was called Jennifer for four years. <laughs> Why? Uh, she just. Called me Jennifer. Is this at White Orbit? This is at White Orbit. And I thought she was such a nice woman and I didn't want to make her feel bad. So I just let her call me. There's there's definitely a Seinfeld episode about not knowing someone's name. That's what I meant, Seinfeld, yeah. Wow. So that's a long time. Did you tell her when you left? No, I didn't. And to this day, she probably is like looking me up on LinkedIn like, where's this Jennifer Bergland? You should friend request her. (laughs) Yeah. Just really thrilled. She won't. She won't know. She's like, oh, is this her sister? <laughs>